Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of introducing Dr. Yannick Villiers-Lepage. Yannick is an assistant professor at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs at Leiden University. He's a member of an editorial board of the International Center for Counterterrorism as well. His education includes a PhD in international relations from the University of St. Andrews, a master's in international affairs from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies, security studies from Carleton University. Yannick, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope to be discussing with you today a little bit about what I'd like to call the evolving landscape of extremism because we're sitting in an interesting crossroads. We're in 20 years on from the war in, uh, in Afghanistan and the beginnings of the war on terror. We are in for some interesting shifts that are happening and currents that are evolving. And uh, the very meaning of terrorism is, is coming under renewed um, definitions. And on that note, I wanted to start our interview today with an anecdote. And this has to do with the event that happened on the 22nd of July in 2011, where approximately one and a half hours after an explosion in Oslo, Anders Breivik boarded a ferry heading to Utøya Island. There, uh, he fired indiscriminately at a Norwegian Labour Party youth camp, killing 69 people. You you wrote about your experiences uh, visiting Utøya Island itself uh, for the uh, a piece that you wrote for the Center of, for Analysis of the Radical Right. Can you briefly tell us about your experiences there at Utøya Island and what it has meant for our understanding and your understanding of radical right extremism? Yeah, thank you. Uh, this was a visit that was organized as part of a, a large academic conference, uh, which is held by the Society for Terrorism Research. And in 2019, it was hosted at the University of Oslo, particularly um, at CREX, which is a center uh, for the study of right-wing extremism, uh, which is probably the, the main research center on the extreme right uh, in the world. Uh, there the group of academics to look to if you're interested in kind of the, some of the, the most boundary pushing and defining research on uh, the radical right. And as part of this conference, they allowed us to visit Utoya to hear presentations from a large array of different individual uh, scholars that had written extensively on uh, the Brevik trial um, including uh, Kato Hemingby, who wrote uh, one of the most fascinating books on the subject, which was the result of 200 hours of, uh, of interviews with, with Brevik himself. And uh, um, Kato was trying to, to understand why Utoya was targeted uh, as opposed to other potential potential targets. Uh, we also met with uh, police officers who responded uh, at the scene, investigators in the immediate aftermath, mental health professionals who helped uh, both the victims, the immediate victims, but also their, their family and Norwegian society as, as a whole, uh, and survivors uh, of the attack. Um, and it was, it was quite moving in, in many ways, as you can imagine, 
Um, as somebody who, who's worked as an intelligence officer or intelligence analyst and then has been studying these topics for about 15 years now, the exercise often becomes somewhat of an academic exercise. I think we've started talking a bit more about the mental health toll that doing this type of research uh, has on, on, on researchers. Uh, but this isn't a topic that has been addressed greatly. And I think uh, a lot of us as a kind of self-preservation mechanism uh, have had to take a step away from the immediate uh, aftermath of these attacks and, and think about these issues in, in slightly more abstract or as case studies. And it's unfortunately easy to forget the victims or to forget the, the families of the victims after an attack has, has taken place. And this visit, I think, was, was very important, shifting the way I think about my work, shifting how I think about the importance of my work, but also shifting the way I think about the role of an attack in society in the, in the aftermath. And while this isn't one of the core uh, areas of my research, one of my colleague who, who just finished her PhD a few days ago, actually, Janine uh, Deroyd uh, Feinstein, uh, has written extensively on this. In fact, her, her thesis is called The Aftermath. It's about everything that's left to the bang. So everything after a particular attack, how commemoration takes place. And she did an extensive case study looking at uh, commemoration in Europe after ISIS attacked during the, the so-called Summer of Terror. And she's also written a, a piece about her experience during the, the same visit. Uh, so if your listeners are interested, it, I, I think it, it's an interesting exercise to read both my piece and Janine's piece side by side. Um, because while they don't contradict each other, they highlight very different aspects uh, of our experiences. And I think in many ways, that's one of the, the fascinating thing about commemoration. I was very taken back by your piece. Um, it was beautifully written. And uh, I think it, um, it really went into some detail. It's obviously not, you know, a book length uh, expose, um, but I was particularly interested in, in your notes about sometimes the indiscriminate mercy and at other times indiscriminate slaughter. It is upon the further study, which I hope to get into this podcast, that we might begin to see a little bit more about the inner workings of a, of a new kind of radicalism that is happening. And that's a good segue into, <laughs> into starting the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the rise of a, of a different kind of, of terrorism. Because you've mentioned the, uh, the so-called Summer of Terror and ISIL-Daesh-related uh, attacks here in Europe uh, of a few years ago. That seems to, for lack of a better word, have gone into a sort of lull, and it is anybody's guess whether uh, that has effectively been dealt with or whether it's, it will un unfortunately rear its, its ugly head uh, as well. But I want to turn our attention to something that perhaps the, the mainstream news uh, narrative doesn't consider in the same vein as the traditional Islamic uh, extremism, and that is the white or the supremacist and far-right nationalist type of terrorism. These are things we have seen in uh, not only in Utoya, uh, but uh, Christchurch, Pittsburgh, and others. Now, here in Britain, the MI5 chief, Ken McCullum, has gone out uh, to say that the threat to UK from hostile states could be as bad as terrorism, and uh, that even a 13-year-old child has quite recently been investigated as a far-right terror suspect. 
where up to one in five investigations at MI5 currently are of this nature. Now, now why, why do you think that is, that when we say terrorism, immediately many people might think of this as a uniquely Islamic experience? And what will it take for the world to start recognizing that white nationalist terror is considerable player in worldwide terror as well? Are we witnessing the rise of this kind of terrorism? There's a lot to unpack there. And I think one of the, the unpleasant realities that we need to get used to, or at least we need to accept, is the fact that political violence is, unfortunately, a very important core of humanity. And I do this when I teach my undergraduate uh, course, particularly I have a lecture on the history of terrorism. And I start off with the earliest records of interspecies violence, which are about 400,000 years ago, the first recorded um, evidence of, of mass graves about 13,000 years uh, before Common Era, the use uh, of deportation and ethnic cleansing and things that are very similar to state terror, by the Neo-Assyrian kingdom uh, 8,000 years before the Four Common Era. So terrorism, political violence is an integral part of, of our species, unfortunately, in the way we have structured um, our, our interspecies dynamics and, and relationship. Now, at the same time, what we see is that the field of terrorism studies uh, as an academic discipline is something that emerged out of uh, events that were happening in, in the Middle East, particularly with regard to, to the Palestinian independence struggle in the 1960s and kind of migrated and bloomed from that. But really the, the explosion in interest and funding and research centers and, and scholars really came in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Um, and, and I'm one of the scholars who's a, who's a product in many ways of this of this particular boom. Now, Lisa Stampanitsky has written a fantastic book called Disciplining Terror, which essentially is a quite a critical, but I think also a very fair analysis of how our field of study came to be. And for lack of a better term, and I'm probably going to get some flack from, from some colleague, is that there is a bit of, of academic ambulance chasing that occurred in, in the aftermath of, of 9-11. There was a research agenda that was created. There were opportunities for government funding. There was a large amount of public interest looking at jihadi terrorism. And as a result of that, that has dominated uh, the scholarship, that's dominated uh, the research that's been done, that's dominated how research has been allocated. But if we kind of step back, Domestic terrorism was an issue prior to 9-11. Um, so if we think in the American case, for example, you had the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, which remains to this day the second deadliest terrorist attack in, in American history. And when I talk about kind of shifting priorities in research, one of my research interests and something I've received uh, a grant from the Canadian government to look at with some collaborators is the presence of white supremacist elements within NATO militaries. And what's really interesting, if you kind of do a, a literature review of this, and if you 
tried to kind of understand everything that's been written on this topic is that immediately after 1995, you've got a couple, you know, a dozen, two dozen studies, thesis that are being written by scholars that look specifically at this issue. And this seems to be a pressing issue in, uh, in, in uh, inquiries. There's also Congress commissions on this and government documents that are written on that. And then you've got 9-11, and that changes all the priorities. It changes the entire focus. And essentially the notion of you know, white supremacy within militaries just gets completely pushed aside uh, until the last two or three years. And that phenomenon isn't only specific to white supremacy within militaries. It has to do with the entire field of populism and all research about the far right. If you went to an academic conference five years ago, you would have maybe one paper on the far right. And, and it, it was at the fringe of our field. And now it's dominating uh, our, our research agenda. So the threat that was posed by the far right existed long before Utoya. It existed long before uh, the academic interest kind of shifted toward this. The threat that is posed by groups like the Islamic State uh, also remains. Um, so I think we have to be very, very careful when we try to think about what is the next pressing threat, what is the most pressing things, because there isn't necessarily a direct correlation between the amount of, of academic or political or journalistic attention that goes to, to a particular form of terrorism, that doesn't always correlate to, to the reality on the field and the, and the nature of the threat. So it sounds to me like the these different types of terrorism uh, are never conclusively dealt with, uh, for lack of a better word, but they are reshuffled and they resurface and they are re-researched as, uh, as and when uh, they appear almost in a cyclical type of fashion. But what I'm interested in asking you is whether, when we talk about the radical right terrorism of, of this last decade, are we referring to the type of political violence that uh, has pretty much defined conflict in the 20th century? Or is there something fundamentally new uh, about what we're seeing now? And looking specifically at the examples uh, that, that we've been looking at before with the Christchurch also in Facebook and other extreme right shootings, Las Vegas comes to mind as well. Um, do they have something in common? in as far as the perpetrator, perhaps, or the ideology that drives it, or even the methodology. Is there anything new in that? And do you think we're in to see more of that in, uh, in this decade ahead? Yeah. So when we're looking about the actual manifestation of, of political violence, I don't think there's anything new in what we're seeing. Uh, individual groups have used political violence in order to, to achieve you know, outcome goals and, and process goals for a very, very long time. Now, when we kind of go to the intricacy of how, um, of how this violence takes place, how it is perpetrated, how ideas are communicated, then yes, there is definitely new trends that we see here, but those are more a product of, of the kind of wider societal environment in which this is occurring. Um, so there's a great deal of, of talk right now about the kind of the far right ecosystem online and this kind of nature, the trans, the new transnational nature of, of the far right, the, the idea that you know individuals that you know can organize internationally, 
white supremacists in the United States can communicate, coordinate, trade lessons learned with white supremacists in the UK or in France. And this is some of the work that me and my colleague Emile Archambault at Durham University have done, kind of tracing networks by which this, this occurs. But there's also a great work done uh, by Graham Macklin at, at C-Rex uh, called Failed Fewer, uh, which essentially looks at the history of, of such a neo-Nazi and fascist in Britain. And what we see is as early as the 1920s, uh, we see this international collaboration between, between British fascists and German fascists and French fascists and, and, and so on. So is the threat different as, as things change drastically? No. The methods by which um, these things evolve uh, has changed. You know, technologies like internet, online streaming, social media, they've changed the nature of terrorism, of course, but they've also changed the nature of society as a whole. And I think this is where it's very important for us when we're thinking about the role of kind of emerging technologies and how te technologies change political violence is that this is unfortunately just a normal part of this process. When you have paradigm shifting technologies that change every aspect of human interaction, it's also going to change the more nefarious side of, uh, of human interactions. Now, I want to pause here for a second and talk about transmission and networks, because this is something that you've mentioned. And looking specifically at uh, your work last year, how terror evolves the emergence and spread of uh, terrorist techniques. This is a work that you've published under the University of, of Leiden. I think for me, this is a really interesting area because on the one hand, we have, as you've been listing, historical antecedents of this kind of cooperation, as you said, between fascists or between certain terror groups in the US and elsewhere, or white nationalist societies, that kind of a thing. On the one hand, there's there's plenty of of history to to look at there and say, okay, this is a continuation of something we we understand, we know about. But then on the other hand, we have technology, specifically social media technology, that allows the spread of this like wildfire, uh, perhaps at a scale that was a lot more difficult to match in the older days. Now, to this, I want to add uh, one of my analogies, which is something I've, a comment I made on a previous podcast here at MySynic. And it was sort of a, made a, in a joking remark that uh, the cartels in Latin America uh, should be considered intelligence consumers or producers, propagators, perhaps. But I thought, okay, this is an interesting idea because tying it with this sort of marketplace of ideas, quote unquote, whereby these terrorists and, and extremist groups are now proliferating, exchanging with each other. I thought, is there a commonality? Is there a, a rich underbelly that we can speak of that acts as a sort of a marketplace of banned ideas between these groups? And do we have any effective way of monitoring that or coacting that or stopping that, uh, or at the very least, even understanding that? And is this something you take a look at in your work? Yeah, and this is one of the areas where I think not a great deal of attention has been devoted on is, is what I like to call the crime terror innovative nexus. And so there's a body of literature called the crime terror nexus, and this essentially tries to look at, at areas where criminality overlaps with terrorism. So topics in, in that subset of, of, of study would be things like prison radicalization, 
or previous criminal behavior of terrorism. And we know that many people engaged in kind of low terrorism had, you know, criminal antecedents. Um, terrorist groups engaging in, ter- in criminality in order to, to fund their plots or, or, or their movement. So there's a huge body of, of literature on that. But what we don't spend a lot of time at is thinking about terrorist and criminal innovations. And we look at these generally in kind of two very isolated, uh, uh, in, in almost silos. So, for example, in my, my work on terror evolves, I focus particularly looking at how is it that terrorists come up with new novel ways of engaging in political violence, weaponizing new technologies, and, and so on. And then there's another body of literature that deals with, with dark criminality, uh, dark uh, innovation, and that essentially focuses on how ter- uh, criminals will weaponize kind of everyday technologies and or in their their pursuit for, for for profit or whatnot. But one of the things I find very interesting is that if you look at a lot of the technologies that we are worrying about today, things like drones, weaponized drones, um, is something that we're, we're worried about. You've seen at least six groups, um, most of them in the Middle East, actually weaponizing commercial drones and using them to, to launch attacks on, on, on civilians and, and soldiers. So while we're very much worried about this, if we actually step back and think about what's involved there, we know the criminals have been using essentially remote control helicopters and, and just regular off-the-shelf drones in order to you know, smuggle drugs and pornography and cell phones and weapons into prison for about 20 years. So there's something that's quite interesting to me, at least it seems to me that criminals often foreshadow terrorist innovation. And I often say that, at least to me, money seems like a much better driver for innovation than ideology. So when I'm chatting with law enforcement and they're asking me kind of what keeps me up at night as far as you know emerging technologies i often tell them there's there's two places you need to look at you need to stop looking at what terrorists are doing with an emerging technology and instead go look at how criminals are using this technology and that's going to give you a really good idea of the kind of as you said the, the dark underside of that technology the kind of the wider potential for, for uh, of benevolent creativity. And the second place I tell them to look at is, go look at the hobbyists. Look at the people that have no nefarious intent, but are just passionate about this particular emerging technology. And look at what they're doing. And that's going to give you a very good idea of how far that technology can be stretched. So going back to the drone um, uh, example, so, if you're worried about weaponized drones, you should be looking at what criminals are doing. And that should kind of that should make you more worried. But you should also spend a bit of time looking at YouTube and what hobbyists are doing. And you'll see that people have mounted handguns, machine gun, rocket launcher, flamethrowers on commercial drones. And that gives you a really good idea of okay, what is feasibly possible. And that allows you to make a, I think, a, a fairly realistic um, risk assessment. So for me, some of the things that kind of scare me um, as far as technologies that are being used by criminals today uh, when I think about terrorism. So weaponized drones is one. 3D printer is another one. And then more and more CRISPR technology. So synthetic biology, 
uh, biohacking, as it's often called. So those are those are my top three things that keep me up uh, at night. Thank you for that, uh, Yannick. I find re- your answers really interesting there on uh, for a number of reasons. But one of them, looking at it from a political science perspective, it's the and depending which school of thought you take, but uh, perhaps from a more Foucault kind of a line, that the state is sort of on this perpetual quest to increase its legibility of society. And it does this for many reasons, uh, notwithstanding taxes need to, uh, the better you understand a population, the better you can tax them. So there has been a historical imperative for states to understand what they're looking at. They come up with better tools, better technologies, better methodologies, and better practices to understand the society by which they govern. States, of course. And why am I talking about this? I think it's really interesting how one of the difficulties that is presented from the counterterrorism perspective of, of a state security services is that effectively you're trying to view the invisible. These are systems that work outside of the law. They are criminals and terrorist networks that operate under the radar. And I think it's really interesting, your answer, because uh, you've effectively pointed out a, a, a number of ways, uh, such as you know YouTube channels of the hobbyists, which seems counterintuitive, but that is something that actually is viewable, is legible. And I think that's really golden advice uh, going into the future about how do we keep up with uh, the application of technologies with criminal uh, or nefarious intent. And that concludes the first part of my conversation with Dr. Yannick Villiers-Lepage on the subject of the evolving landscape of terrorism. Join us for the next episode, where we elaborate further on this topic. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day. 